0: So good morning, Uh, glad to be back here with y'all again. Um, I think this is the third week um, on my half of the Forgotten Character series. Um, And so um, the last time I spoke, uh, it would have been on the Judge Deborah um, a couple weeks ago uh, from the Book of Judges, and last week Carrie would have covered um, the lady who washed Jesus' feet um with her hair and her tears. And so I had to watch that lesson on the church's Facebook page um because I was out of town and the reason you know that I had to do all that is kind of the inspiration for the lesson that I have prepared this week. Uh, you see last Saturday I had a relative of mine, it was my grandmother um who called me, it's my maternal grandmother, and she called me on kind of late Saturday evening With my mother was there and um, her two sisters, and she called uh, to basically say goodbye, um, and so I had a death in the family uh, it was why I was out, um, but my grandmother, she had COPD, and uh, it's something that we kind of knew um, was going on, um, since so because really since about November, she had kind of spent the majority of her time in the hospital uh, more so than at home. And so thankfully, Katie and I were able to go down and see her before she passed away. And um, Unfortunately, she did on Tuesday, and so I took off kind of the rest of the work week and uh, went down there to help out uh, with the funeral and the viewing and things like that. Um, And so when I received that news, uh, when I got that phone call that she did Uh, pass away. Um, You kind of have some first reactions just like many of you probably have some first sort of reactions uh, when either a friend or a family member sort of passes away and um, you maybe might think about um, the good times that you have with that person um, and you also probably have some sadness uh, that you're met with as well. Um, But something that often occurs either within those first initial moments or at at some point afterwards, uh, either at the funeral, you, you begin to uh, question, uh, because you face with that person's mortality, the, uh, you begin to wonder about your own. And, and so you begin to have questions, uh, and perhaps in some people's cases, maybe even some concerns, because we become face-to-face with sort of this brevity of, of life, uh, that it can be gone in an instant, and we know that, Uh, We're faced with it each and every day, but the Scripture is clear on that. And Psalm 103 uh, compares life as a flower in the field, and the wind comes and it's gone, and that's the life of man. Or you have James 4, uh, where life is compared to a vapor, um, that it comes and goes. And so oftentimes in these moments you sort of ask yourself maybe that ultimate question when it is my time and I have to give an account for the things that I said or the things that I did or the things that I didn't do, what will the judgment be for me? Or how should I feel about my impending judgment? So in light of those questions, um, the character I wanted to talk on um, you know, is not necessarily... I wouldn't maybe characterize it as, as, a forgotten character. Uh, it is something that's studied from time to time. Uh, but it is something that, um, I was sort of inspired by, by the recent events. Uh, but that is the characters that we find, um, from the story of the rich man Lazarus. Um, and so that's where we'll be at today. You're gonna be, we will be mainly in Luke chapter 16. So if you'd like to turn your Bibles there, uh, Luke 16, and it starts in verse 19. Luke chapter 16, starting verse 19. <clears throat> Let's read there in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried, carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said to Lazarus that he may dip the tongue of his finger and water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great goal fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he says, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rises from the dead. Uh, and a little bit of context of that um, Kind of right before in verse 14, just so you kind of know maybe where, why this um, kind of came up from Christ, uh, you have kind of that, that line starting with f- verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things. And I think that provides some of the context of maybe why Jesus told this. So kind of one of the first things I wanted to point out, uh, you may hear, you know, I'm, I may call it a parable uh, every once in a while, uh, you may hear other people say a parable of the rich man Lazarus, and you may have heard this point before. It comes up a lot uh, when you talk about this, is that you know, we might be dealing with something that's not a parable, um, something that may have been real events and real people. Um, and because this is, you know, parables in, in, in the New Testament it usually begins like with something the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, and it will follow like a parable. But in this one, Jesus actually says there was a beggar named Lazarus, and so unlike Jesus' other parables, this person has a name assigned to him. It's the only one that does. Uh, and Jesus said, this specific man was at the gates of a rich man. Um, it's the only one of the parables really to do this. And as well, it mentions real characters like Abraham and the prophets. And so perhaps we aren't dealing with a parable at all here, but a telling of actual events. And so what I wanted to kind of do, uh, ultimately what I wanted to kind of I have at the end of this lesson kind of four points about the afterlife that I want to kind of get to. Uh, and I may have to speed up a little bit to get there, um, but I kind of wanted to break down the parable uh, first before we got there. And so I want to kind of do it by the scenes um, a- as it goes. You have this kind of before death uh, picture that is painted by Christ. And you kind of it kind of flip-flops you know throughout the entire sort of story there you have what the rich man's doing and you have what Lazarus is doing then it moves to at the time of their death you have what the rich man's doing what Lazarus is doing and it keeps going kind of like that um, so you have this kind of before death um, sort of telling by Christ you have the rich man um, and you learn a few things about him obviously by the name of the rich man he's rich uh, it's not really a giveaway uh, or something that he's hiding there, but we can see that also by some of the things that Christ tells us that he was dressed uh, in purple. Uh, And this is, you know, as you maybe know, as you've studied history or things like that, uh, dyes aren't uh, as readily accessible as they are today to be able to dye certain pieces of clothing or things like that, in particular purple. Uh, You know, you often hear that purple is associated with royalty or with the rich or, or something like that. And so I think he brings that up on purpose to kind of show his wealth Uh, that this wouldn't have been something easy for him to obtain. He obviously would have to possess some great wealth. Another thing is that he wore fine linen, of what it says. You know, He's not walking around with any sort of raggedy raggedy sort of clothes, anything like that. But he dressed himself in such a way, not only was it purple, but it was fine material as well. And something else is that he feasted every day. Um, And this is constant. Uh, It's an everyday sort of thing. At no point did he ever have to worry about uh, where his next meal would come from. Uh, he wasn't like Lazarus at all, who sat there and kind of wondered, you know, just what will I have today just to get by? But instead, each and every day, the rich man probably got to choose uh, what he wanted to eat. He probably, you know, whatever kind of suited his fancy on that day. If he felt um, like it was a chicken day, he might have, you know, he'd even have chicken or if he had beef. Uh, and so he never really had to worry about that. And then the next thing that we, we, we really don't know, I, I would say, is we really don't know if he wasn't really a criminal or anything, a violator of the laws. It doesn't really bring out a whole lot about his, his life. The only sin that we can really point to uh, in this story um, or a couple is that um, he wouldn't help out the poor or the hungry and is sort of selfish with his money. And so that's kind of the rich man before his death. Obviously, Christ tells us a little bit about you know, just how rich he is, um, and he kind of really points out that he wasn't there to help the poor and the downtrodden. You can kind of draw from that that he was most likely selfish with his money. And so then we have Lazarus, um, and it talks about him sitting at the rich man's gate. And there's a few things we, we can draw uh, from this as well is that he would have been distressed. Um, He's a beggar. Uh, He would have been in dire circumstances almost each and every day, uh, probably not knowing where he would lay his head down, uh, certainly not knowing where he would get his next meal. He would not know what the next day would bring for him. Um, He would have been uh, infirmed. He talks about that he's full of sores. Um, And so we can draw from that that he wasn't probably necessarily a lazy man, uh, somebody just just didn't work and begged for his living or, or something like that. But he has this ailment that he's afflicted with. Uh, and it's something that impacted him each and every day that he's, he's covered in sores. And so this would have to be a man that would have to rely on the generosity of others. And then we can draw from that, when, from what we read, that he was probably desperate. He desired the crumbs from the rich man's table. I'd I'd have to say that's a good adjective that that fits him, is that he is desperate, that someone would so desire the crumbs. You might have come across somebody out there in the world who may be uh, down on their luck or uh, going through a, a tough patch, but they're not usually desirous of just the crumbs of the table. And so we're faced with a man who's probably truly desperate. And then we can draw from his before his death that he was most likely, um, most likely a little bit miserable uh, just in the secular life. Uh, and this is because he lays there and it talks about how the dogs would come and they would lick uh, his sores. Uh, I don't know about you. Some people do, and that's not against you. I don't really like to be licked by dogs uh, or animals. Uh, some people like that, and that's fine. Uh, you can certainly have that. Uh, but I know for me to have sat there and just let a dog lick me, it would have been like, I had to feel pretty bad uh, <laughs> just to let that happen. Um, but he was obviously in such a state, you know, maybe he might have been a dog sort of guy or, or something like that. And, uh, you know, I like dogs. Don't take from this lesson that I'm anti-dogs or anything like that. Um, but he must have felt pretty bad to just lay there and let these dogs continually lick the sores on his body. I'd imagine that the sores were painful um, and that they afflicted him in such a way that this was really the only comfort that he had as far as any sort of medical intervention. And so even the dogs had pity on Lazarus. And so then you have this moment that they die. You know, and death can be described as maybe the, the great equalizer of all mankind because when Lazarus died, the parable tells us that he's carried away by God's angels. And he's carried away into paradise. And something I want to—I want you to look at here, Christ doesn't say something that he doesn't mean. Christians can look forward to the day when the angels carry us away to paradise, to heaven. But something else I, w- I would just think, and maybe this is a broad stroke of the brush with it, but I would imagine maybe not a lot of people attended his funeral, Um I would imagine it would be something similar to uh, the people who are sort of the downtrodden in society, sort of the outcasts that when they pass away, um, very few people know about it. um, And there's not a lot of people there to um, be there as they're buried. But then you have, after that, that the rich man died and was buried. And I would imagine, again, a broad stroke of the brush, that um, he had a, a nice, a big funeral Um, He would have been buried in in nice clothing. There would have been his friends and his family there, the people that he maybe gave his wealth to or celebrated with. Uh, And it might have been a, you know, sort of a a big event uh, where there is a celebration of his life. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible treats him as more as the afterthought in this situation. Where it just says, and the rich man also died and was buried. And so he dies just like Lazarus. But he's the afterthought at this point. And so they move into this after death sort of situation. And it tells us that Lazarus um, is laying on Abraham's bosom. And this is sort of, you know, as, as you might think, sort of what I draw from it at least, or, uh, what I believe it might be referencing um, is when they would dine or eat, they had sort of that laying sort of position uh, as they would eat and that you would be virtually leaning upon the next person who is beside you uh, and sort of this community sort of gathering over a meal. And so that's what I sort of think of there. He's in the fellowship with Abraham at this time. And that's kind of what I draw from it. Uh, it could be something, though, as simple uh, as simple as that he's just leaning upon Abraham at this time. Um, but I like to think that it's sort of this fellowship, and he's there with Abraham. And I think that this is sort of, you know, thinking upon it in that sort of way is sort of symbolic, because you have up until this time, the man just wanted to eat. He wanted to know where his next meal is at, and now he's sort of a guest of honor, uh, that he's up there and he's beside Abraham. And in the Jewish culture, that would be such a huge deal to see someone and they get sit next to Abraham, sort of the the founder of their people. And so he goes goes on to paradise and he's not hurting uh, and he's no longer begging and he's with Abraham. And this is really important because they're Jews. And so then you move on to the rich man and he's described as being in torment. And I think something we, we can pull from that is torment um, will not just happen in hell, but, but, but it begins as soon as we die if we are unfaithful. There's no sort of purgatory, as you might think, with maybe sort of the Catholic religion um, that people move on to, uh, that it's, we can draw from this is sort of an instantaneous sort of thing that happens, uh, that he was immediately in torment after his death. And so there's no purgatory, and that at any moment we could die and we could, our fate could be sealed. But we have this moment where he's after death and he's in torment. And I'd like to think from the way that he words it, or the way Christ words the rich man's statements, is that he asks Lazarus to send him some water, or to dip his finger in water and place it on his tongue. That at this point he thinks he's still in charge, uh, that he can still sort of order Lazarus around. I imagine um, the rich man would have saw him each and every day as he left his gate uh, and that sometimes he probably ordered him around or told him to do this or that. Uh, but he still thinks that he is in a position of power and he wants Lazarus to come and do this for him. And then I think we can also pull from that is just the amount of pain uh, that he would be in. Uh, that it's not something like, you know, can I have a cup of water? Can I have a gallon of water? Uh, but just dip your finger in water and place it on my tongue so that I can have some sort of relief. And so then this conversation begins between the rich man and, and Abraham. And Abraham says, son, remember. And he says, "And something I want, I want to point out right there. He says, son, remember one of the torments of being in hell will be the remembering. Because the rich man remembers why he was there. And so there's sort of two pains in sort of one. Obviously you have the discipline that is occurring because of the way that he lived. But you also have this sort of emotional or uh, mental sort of uh, discipline that occurs as well that you have your memory to this is why I'm in the situation that I'm in. And in contrast, Lazarus has been carried away into joy. And do you think at any point in in, in paradise there that Lazarus is thinking about begging or he has to wonder about which crumbs he he will get today? You see, God cleans the slate and death equalizes us all. And then it continues on that he, he asks... You know, Abraham, you know, to, to come in a system and, and Abraham says, well, even if we wanted to help you, uh, even if it if someone wanted to come over there and, and help you, that we cannot do that because of this great gulf that's between us. That it's impossible to cross. You can't come over here and I can't go over there. And so that must be something as well that must be awful to think about, to see just how good it is on the other side as Um, the rich man is able to see Lazarus and see him there with Abraham. And then he moves on from that. Well, if I can't be saved, if it's too late for me, once again he goes, I beg you, Abraham, send Lazarus. Send him. Again, maybe he hasn't got past that train of thought that he has some sort of power over Lazarus. Send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. And he sort of, you know, gets to this point that he's thinking that if they see this miracle, if they see this person that's, that's came back from the dead and they're faced with them, that they would turn away, uh, from their evil living. And when they think that they would be faithful if they just saw a miracle. And we can sort of draw that most likely, uh, that this would have occurred, uh, probably sometime, uh, during one of the prophets because of Abraham's talking about, uh, that they have Moses and he has the prophets. Um, and so we can most likely draw that this is probably when this would have occurred but I think it's something I reference um, when I talked about Deborah uh, when I talked about the Israelites when they were faced with the, the daily miracles of God out there in the desert of the pillar of, of cloud and pillar of fire and the manna from heaven that they were given daily miracles and yet they still stumble I don't think that would have changed I think it maybe would have brought sort of an immediate sort of change, but not a, a long, sort of lasting sort of thing. But anyhow, Abraham says, no, I'm not going to send Lazarus. They have Moses, and they have the prophets. And th- this is something important that I want us to draw from this uh, as well. Is that once the rich man realizes that I can't be saved, there's no comfort for me in this moment. He's sinking of others, and he wants other people to be saved, that I have my family, and that if I can't be saved, let them be saved. And that's something that really spoke to me about uh, this passage here. Um, everyone sort of in my immediate family and my father's side of the family are, are members of the church. Um, but it, uh, if you go kind of to my mother's extended family, they're all sort of... Um, um, Southern Baptists, or various different religions, and, and things like that. Uh, but everybody, sort of, my immediate family, and on my father's side, is are members of the church. Um, and so you have this moment uh, when someone passes on, and they're and you begin to wonder because they weren't a, a member and they didn't do the things as as we as they are commanded to do. What would be their eternal destination? And I think this is something to really consider uh, from this passage: um, that even though that individual may have went on and is not in a place that is desirous, is is they have not ascended on to uh, to paradise, that they would want you to change. I think. Anytime you study the Bible with somebody or you begin to try to evangelize somebody, uh, eventually you'll get to a point where they realize that not only have they been living in sin, but their loved ones have. And perhaps even their loved ones that have moved on and passed from this life. And that's that's a speed bump for a lot of folks that I don't know if I can say that this is right or the, w- the way that we've been studying. I don't know if I can do that because by saying that this is right, by saying that this is the way, I'd be saying that my loved ones who moved on, that they didn't do it right. They didn't follow Christ. And so I would, would actually encourage you to look at this passage. If you, if you ever get to that moment with a family member that you're studying with, or anybody that you're studying with, that person who's moved on, we have an example here, that if if they could have you change, they would do it. That if they could send someone to talk to you, to change the way you're living, they would do it. That if you're, and, it, and it's tough to say, if your mother, or your father, a sibling, a friend has passed on, and you And you know, they weren't living the right way. They would want you to change. You see, we have that saying that misery loves company. But somehow, Hades, uh, there in Tartarus where um, the rich man is, it overcomes that. That he doesn't want, even though he's in misery, he doesn't want more company than this it's just something that's so not desirous, something that is so, such filled with, with torment, that I want other people to change. There is no misery loves company in this situation. I want anyone that can avoid coming here to do so. So I'm going to kind of speed up through a little bit of my stuff here. Um, just to I can get kind of to those four points because we're kind of running low on time. But I just want to make a quick few points, I guess, about some of the things we can draw from that really quickly. Um, it's just that there's consciousness uh, in eternity. Uh, these men were cognizant of their surroundings and death, uh, and that they can interact with one another. Uh, there's recognition. Uh, the rich man saw and recognized Lazarus. He recognized Abraham uh, in eternity. Um, that you have physical feelings um, still. Uh, The rich man says that he is tormented in this flame, uh, that have mercy upon him. Um, You still have your memory. That's another thing. When Abraham says says to him, son, remember. Or when he remembers that he has five brothers and the way that they are living. And also something too that it points out is that there is separation. Uh, that there is a great gulf that is in between them and that no one can pass to either side and that you are separated from God and separated from the others that are living with Him. So I'm going to kind of move on a little bit. I had had a lot more, but um, I really wanted to get to those kind of four points kind of about the afterlife that I wanted to kind of bring up. Um, So what ultimately does this parable mean for us? it is at its core a glimpse into the vast dichotomy of our potential afterlife destinations. And I want to make these, these four points uh, that we can draw from, from this parable. Uh, it's important to note that in, in the gospel that Christ didn't preach a gospel of life enhancement. You know, we, we see this a lot of times in a lot of the, um, I'll just call them ministers, uh, that we see on, on TV, Um and they preach this sort of, this message of life and enhancement or the feel-good sort of message. And, and that's great, uh, because, and it's, and I, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, because that's what people love to hear. Uh, people love to hear the gospel, uh, of, of enhancement. The gospel that things will be okay. That if you follow the gospel, things will work out great for you. That your life will be great, you'll have a, You'll have, you'll have a great job, you'll have a great spouse, you have great children that always listen to you, you'll have the best of friends, you'll never have to worry about anything because you follow the gospel. And I think that's kind of brought on a lot of times because of maybe the culture that we live in, uh, certainly even more so today, and we sort of all buy into it, um, that if we follow God and if we're good Christians, that this will correlate to our secular life. And that we will have success and will prosper there because we're Christians, and that's just not the case. Those two things aren't correlated with each other. That is to say, most people have this idea that if they just come to church, that they, you know, the church, the ministers, the elders, the the, the people attending there, that they'll bend you up and for the small bumps that you run into in your life, and will meet all your sort of needs, uh, and will make you happy as a consumer of a product. Um, But how shallow that sort of religion is. That we treat God, we treat Christ, we treat the Holy Spirit as just our therapist that we check into and we give our contribution and that's sort of our payment uh, for the hour for make me feel good. How shallow that sort of religion is. So in one sense, Jesus didn't guarantee this life and how it would turn out for you. And we can see that with the despair of Lazarus. I don't envy the way that he lived. Um, you, thankfully, I've never been in a situation where I've had a, an, an illness that it continues on like his, um, or I have to ever wonder about where uh, my next meal would be to the point of desiring crumbs. And so we can see from the despair of, of Lazarus that Christ doesn't guarantee how our secular life will turn out. Um and we can see it from Lazarus, and we can see because of the way the rich man lived, and that he clearly had financial success. But Christ certainly guaranteed the next one. So, in a way, our life right now and our afterlife depends on the actions we take now and how we respond to Christ's message and to God's call. And so here are those those points. Uh, the first one is that everyone will be raised and judged. Death ends no one's existence. Every single human will be raised and brought before God to be judged, just like the rich man and Lazarus will be. John chapter 5 and verse 24 says Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge, because He is the Son of Man. You see, judgment begins at the very presence of Christ. Indeed, a, a time is coming where Jesus will come, and everyone will rise up to be judged, and those who have done good will go on to eternal life, and those who have done evil will rise to meet their judgment. Everyone will face this from the one individual who knows you the most. From the one person who knows the struggles and the concerns that you've had because he had them too. And no one will be able to engage in any sort of identity theft and no one will demand an appeal because we will know that he is judged righteously. And so the second point about the afterlife is that anyone who trusts and Jesus will be welcomed into heaven. Jesus was consistent with this message that our afterlife depends on our relationship with Him. Being good enough is not good enough to enter heaven. You see, the question on Judgment Day is not necessarily, how much did I sin? But the question will be, did I trust God's answer to my sin? In John chapter 8, Jesus says, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. You will indeed die in your sins. You see, God loves the whole world. He sent His only Son because of that. But only those who intentionally and purposefully cling to grace go to heaven. Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and are baptized and state that belief go to heaven. So the question ultimately is, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Christ? Do you trust God's answer to your sin? And while that seems like an easy question, oftentimes we forget where allegiances and loyalties actually lay due to our own actions. And so that third point about afterlife is, That heaven is real. John 14 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. see, God has purposefully through the New Testament giving us glimpses into heaven because he wants us to desire to be there. He goes and he tells us, I have prepared a place for you. There are many rooms, and I would have told you if it wasn't so. God has desi- desired for us to be with him. And heaven is a place of many rooms because heaven is a place of community. I guess many times, how often have, have you said that if I can sort of just get away from the people, if I could just get a, away from, you know, X, Y, and Z, that I would be okay? And you can kind of see this play out over the history of man with the, you know, various different religions. They would create these monasteries where they would be off in some distant sort of area to put themselves away from, from the men and the women, uh, and the temptations that are around community. Uh, and they would put themselves out there to get away from those people. And you would have to journey yourself to go to those places. And then you people, you know, really just oftentimes want to run away from their problems. Because they just want to be alone. And they think if it wasn't for the people, the other people, that I would be okay. You see, heaven is not a place to go to escape relationships, but to embellish them. Heaven is a real tangible place and you and I are going to be raised in physically transformed bodies and not to a place filled with clouds and with castles in the sky where I fly around on wings and I'm some sort of spiritual see-through body, but to a real city. God is coming for me and for you. And He's preparing a place for me in heaven so unique to me. Heaven is going to be a place of unlimited capacity and opportunity to experience God face-to-face. And I know what you're thinking. Won't that get boring? It's eternity. Won't it get boring? I know. Here we have uh, we have bells um, when the lesson, you know, gives you kind of that. There we go. Uh, (laughs) And they they tell you to to wrap it up. Uh, They tell you to wrap it up. That you got five minutes. At the church where I grew up, we really didn't have bells. Uh, and so it kind of went as long as the person wanted to go. Uh, <laughs> and so you'd have moments where you would see people. Because the clock, just like this one, um, I guess more so when I was younger when cell phones weren't as rampant, there was a, a clock just like this one that's on the back wall, kind of in the center. And you could tell that you were talking for a really long time because you would see people. <laughs> And they would look and they would see how far away you are from the top of the hour. And, and you could sort of see that, uh, as you, as you look out. And you think for a second, the, those people, how would they deal with the concept of eternity? That it goes on and on. And there's no end. And you think that if I can't get through a couple hours in a church service, it just get boring. That maybe the first couple of years, you know, we've kind of we've sung all the songs, we've heard a few lessons. It get boring, like a trip. Sort of to I, I can tell you in, in my experience, we would always go growing up if we were going on vacation, we were going either to Gulf Shores or we were going to Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg. And I've probably been to Gatlinburg like thirty times in my life. And I still love it. Um, but, you know, eventually at some point you don't want to go to the Dixie Stampede for the tenth time. And there's only so much you can stampede. Uh, and so you, you think for a moment, you know, just like that trip to that destination of why you love it. By the second year, you, you want to get a little bit boring. As we sing the, the tenth time of a kumbaya or of God's family. Won't it just be too commonplace? When I let God and Christ when I let them become boring. However, I think we we can think on that when we look at Paul's words in Acts chapter seventeen, verse twenty eight, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. You see, it is God's very presence that creates the very essence of joy. Psalm 73, yet I am with you always. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is to strengthen my heart and my portion forever. You see, God never gets old or boring because from God is the very essence of happiness, the very essence of joy. That's where we draw it from. Sort of St. Augustine said this, and I think he was right, that God is the end of our desires. When we're faced with Him, that's where it all comes from. Truly, You have made us from your, for Yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until we rest in You. You see, being with God and with Christ in person is really what we were made for. And so it will never get boring. The fourth and last point, and I'll try to not go too long, is that heaven is not our default destination. Just as we see with the rich man and Lazarus that they ended up in different destinations. Yes, hell is real and it is not the invention of prophets and of church folk that are just trying to scare people into doing what's right. And trust me when I say this, I don't want to believe in hell. Do you? I don't want to have to believe that there's this eternal consequences for my action. If I had a choice, maybe I wouldn't believe in it. But Christ, but Jesus is far too clear on his existence to deny it. One theologian kind of put it like this that There seems to be some kind of conspiracy to forget or deny where the doctrine of hell comes from. It is no medieval uh, priestcraft trying to scare people into giving more to the church. It is Christ delivered judgment on sin. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. You see, the truth is that heaven and hell must stand together. That without hell, Jesus' sacrifice is diminished. When he came to save me, what is the point if there's no hell? The cross would be less heroic and less potent. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else because he's the only one so far that's truly seen what God's forsakenness is like and has come back to tell the tale. I'll kind of move down a little bit farther, uh, but... You see, no one goes to heaven automatically like you're entitled to it. Often it's said that for every one person that believes that they uh, would go to hell, there's probably 150 people that believe that they're going to go to heaven uh, with some sort of like universalism way of thinking or philosophy that there are no bad consequences at the end of the age. And so yes, not everyone gets to go to heaven. Only the ones that choose to go there. God does not send people to hell. He simply honors their choices. C.S. Lewis in, in The Great Divorce said it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those God says to, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it, or else there would be no hell. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say in a book, that I willingly believe that the damned are successful rebels to the end and that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. You say, n- no one in hell will say that God sent me. You see, God put hell on His Son so we don't have to go there. No one in heaven will be able to say, I put myself there either. When we first see heaven, we are truly going to be amazed at the beauty, of the majesty, the purity and the holiness of God and of His creation, that we would be truly dumbfounded that God made a way for sinners to get there with Him. And this is because God will reward us with eternal celebration. He will finally say, come and enter your master's happiness. And this is a very telling picture because it doesn't tell us that being around God produces a lot of joy, but that God is joy Himself and that His joy is contagious and it will be the very air that we breathe and it will never end. And if you really think about it here on this earth, what are we really doing almost each and every day in the decisions that we make? It's in the pursuit of happiness, in the pursuit of joy. And so let me end it kind of with this, with one last quote, and then the lesson will be yours. I'm sorry I've went over a little bit. It says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and with sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see here, the Christian life is a source of better joy and of paradise. We are offered infinite joy, unlimited joy, an eternity of joy and of happiness. But we settle for nothing. We're like the rich man. A lot of times in our lives, we settle for nothing. We are offered infinite joy. God offers a great deal more than we think. Don't settle for less. We are offered the greatest reward, so don't settle for nothing when everything is on the table. Thank you. Have a great day. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer... Send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.